You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 2nd of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. The risk for them, and in a way, the risk for everybody, <laughs> is that the centrist parties then adopt this hardline rhetoric in relation to xenophobia and immigration and hope to uh, undermine the appeal of the extreme right. But then the damage is done because that discourse then enters into the mainstream of politics. As Germany's right-wing AFD suggests a more moderate message might give it a wider appeal, we ask who it'll be fooling. My guests, Marie Leconte and Victor Boomer-Thomas, will discuss that and the day's other news, including what might Boris Johnson be worrying about Donald Trump saying as the US president arrives in the UK for a NATO summit. And is a picture worth a thousand watches? An artist in Denmark doesn't want his painting cannibalised for timepieces. Plus... This fair's reputation as the wild child of the Art Basel family has always had enormous pull with collectors and journalists. Miami welcomes Art Basel. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. It's been a busy weekend for Germany's political rivals. The Alternative for Germany party elected new leaders at the weekend, seemingly to try to persuade voters that it's a moderate, decidedly middle-class movement. With me to discuss that and some of the day's other stories are Victor Bulmer-Thomas, an associate fellow at the think tank Chatham House, and the political journalist and author Marie Leconte. Um, One way of looking at this is that the AFD recognises its potential for growth is limited by the voters who are turned off by the notion of a far-right group obsessing over immigration. But the success of the far-right across Europe has been to normalise conversations that in the past would have been seen as being on the margins. Yes. I mean, look, the lure of power is very seductive and there are very few political parties who don't uh, seek to get closer to it and they will do what it takes And clearly, if they feel they're being uh, limited uh, by the stridency of their message uh, to a relatively small proportion of the electorate, they will seek to um, widen their appeal. Of course, um, there are dangers from their point of view, but not that many, because actually... The uh, uh, the sort of extremist uh, messages on immigration, which appeal to uh, a small proportion of the population in Germany and elsewhere, those people are not suddenly going to vote centrist parties because the AFD has become more centrist. I imagine that they will stick with the AFD. Uh, obviously, the risk for them... And in a way, the risk for everybody (laughs) is that the centrist parties then adopt this hardline rhetoric in relation to xenophobia and immigration and hope to uh, uh, undermine the appeal of the extreme right. But then the damage is done because that discourse then enters into the mainstream of uh, politics. I mean, in a way, Marie, is it a bit too late for this because Donald Trump took a fairly radical right-wing message to a disenchanted American middle class who in the context of being a mainstream Republican Party candidate. Brexit campaigners successfully exploited a sense of alienation and frustration among working-class voters, and those mainstream political parties do now embrace the conversations that in the past they were reluctant to have because they fear the political impact of of the far-right movements. Um, Yes, that's true, but I do think that what they're trying to do is effectively to widen their electoral coalition, so... 
I think one of the best examples uh, to compare it to is probably the National Front in France and what Marine Le Pen did when she took the party over from her father. Um, in that, you know, she made a very, very conscious effort to try and appeal to a broader, again, sort of like electoral coalition, broader sense of voters um, in France by, you know, partly shifting the way they talked about some different issues. And also, I think, interestingly, sold itself as basically a party that liked, um, you know, liberal France and that liked kind of France in its breadth. Um, but, you know, obviously with the caveat being that, you know, the terrible, terrible immigrants were coming over and there were the ones destroying France, etc. Um, and that has kind of worked because, you know, in France, um, I think it was 21% of 18 to 24 year olds uh, voted for the National Front in the first round of the election in 2017. So I do think that it's basically for them in terms of survival for the party that they're doing, you know, what other European um, far-right parties have done. It's a, a rebranding exercise, I suppose, Victor, in a way, that as you say, the the people who were already susceptible to a more hardline message, you already have them as voters, and then you hope that you can keep them while softening your sort of public-facing message. I think also it depends very much on whether it's a presidential or a parliamentary system. If it's a presidential system, then at some point, the candidate of, of the extreme right party has to win a presidential election. And clearly, you can't do that if you're just appealing to a minority. If it's a parliamentary system, of course, your aim is to be either holding the balance of power in parliament or to be the largest party in terms of seats, but not necessarily a majority. So it's a different strategy. Uh, sadly, we saw how that worked out in the 1930s in Germany. And so one has to be very alert to all these risks. Well, one of the um, things that really did sort of surprise these mainstream political movements in Europe in particular, I think there was a sense, was there not, that, that these arguments about immigration and about bringing in different cultures and cultural tolerance... These arguments have been won. There was a general liberal consensus that people were happy with that. And then what the rise of these populist movements in a host of countries seems to have demonstrated is that just under the surface was a significant proportion of people who would not themselves not think of themselves as extremists or right wingers, but who were uneasy at the pace of change in their country and felt alienated in some way. Um, yes, and I do think one thing that's changed as well is actually social media and especially Facebook. So I do think that you can have a lot of people who may, again, so, you know, not entirely be happy about immigration and have certain thoughts that are, you know, not usual in polite society, but would probably have felt quite isolated, probably quite ashamed uh, of those beliefs and, you know, would not share them with others. Now and again, especially with Facebook and with all the voters, they are able to create these networks, they're able to see that actually lots of people agree with them and that will embolden, I think, people and give them a new sense of kind of identity Entity. So that's probably, I think, why those parties have been on the rise again, because, because again, those people have been able to connect with one another um, via social media and able to kind of tell each other, you know, we're not wrong, we're in the right, we're actually the silent majority, etc. I mean, has it caused a sort of surprise to what you might call the political ruling class, a sort of realisation that actually quite a high proportion of the people they are governing have views that they themselves find quite unpleasant? Well... I guess so, because you remember Gordon Brown uh, getting caught on microphone uh, some years ago. Uh, but I don't think they should be, because um, I think uh, they have confronted uh, quite unpleasant views on the doorstep all their political careers. And uh, obviously, that doesn't necessarily dictate the way people vote, but people are perfectly happy to express their opinion to uh, politicians um, uh, when they meet them one-on-one. -on -one. 
One shouldn't be um, too fatalistic about this. I mean, it is, for people like me, rather depressing to see the rise of the extreme right across Europe. But there are uh, various counter-trends. I mean, you have countries like Portugal where the issue of immigration is considered to be a very positive one. And that's right across the political spectrum, more or less. You have countries where individual parties fight for the, uh, the importance of immigration as making a very positive contribution to society, etc. And those voices haven't gone away. And perhaps even more important, there does seem to be a sort of ceiling for the um, extreme right vote. And whether you're looking uh, you know, at the Scandinavian countries in the north or the uh, Iberian countries in the south, I mean, there are... Uh, seemingly limits to the willingness of the electorate in general to go along with this message of hatred, frankly. Marie LeConte and Victor Bulmer-Thomas there, and we'll be back in just a moment. First, though, Monocle's Ben Ryland has some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Paul. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, says the world must choose hope over surrender in the fight against climate change. Mr Guterres made the comments as political leaders gather in Madrid for a key environmental conference. Leaders are expected to spend the next two weeks discussing the climate emergency. Iraq's parliament has approved the resignation of the country's prime minister, Adel Abdul Mahdi. It follows months of political violence, which have seen protesters take to the streets to demand better public services and an end to corruption. Hundreds of people have been killed since the demonstrations began in October. And the White House says Donald Trump will not attend an impeachment hearing in the House of Representatives later this week. Trump says he could not be expected to participate fairly. Senior Democrats have said the president should either attend or stop complaining about the process. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Paul. Ben, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne here with Victor Boomer-Thomas and Marie LeConte. Uh, now, Donald Trump arrives in the UK tonight for a NATO summit that is either perfectly timed for Boris Johnson or is a potential disaster. A little over a week before a general election, the US president will inevitably be invited to have his say something the Prime Minister is apparently very nervous about. There are reports, Murray, that Boris Johnson's very keen that Donald Trump doesn't endorse him. It's hard, though, to imagine Mr Trump keeping his opinions to himself. <laughs> I think, yeah, th- there's been uh, several slightly amusing reports of basically Team Boris trying to hide Boris from Trump for the entire length um, of Trump's visit to the UK. But um, I'm not sure yet, yeah, to be honest, I'm not sure there's anything Boris Johnson can possibly win um, by having Trump endorse him, by having Trump kind of, you know, supporting him. Because maybe, you know, had the Brexit party been doing better in the polls, um, I could have seen how, you know, maybe the Conservatives would have liked Trump to maybe say, you know, Boris is my guy, because that can maybe bring those voters back to the Conservatives. Um, but in terms of current wavering voters between the Tories and any other party, that is not going to help at all. Um, but that being said, Trump will, you know, will do as Trump does. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what will happen over the next few days. But I think that Team Boris will probably be quite anxious because especially when you think of um, the pictures of Donald Trump holding Theresa May's hand, that haunted May for a very, very long time. So the same thing may well happen. And the other thing as well is that I think there's a slight, I mean, obviously we'll only know this on December 13th or whenever the studies come out, but I think women tend to like Boris Johnson less uh, than men do. And surely that's not going to help. Someone like Donald Trump actually coming out for Boris Johnson, I think is not going to convince female voters to actually go back 
um, to voting for the Conservative Party. And it's a tricky line to walk, isn't it, Victor? You are you are hosting the President of the United States at a major international summit, and the last thing you want him to do is say anything nice about you. I don't think we should discount the degree of cooperation between the Johnson team and the Trump team, actually. Uh, we saw it at the beginning of this campaign when Trump successfully intervened to ensure that uh, the Brexit party was not a direct and existential threat to the Tory party. So he backed Boris then quite unambiguously and uh, got his way as far as uh, removing the potential threat from the Brexit party. Um He's no fool, Trump. He's not going to stand up and say you should all vote for Johnson. Uh, But he'll do possibly a couple of things. uh, I mean, he may do things that will harm uh, uh, Johnson. I don't think he'll hold his hands. I don't think he need to worry about that. But he could do some things that, that could hurt him. But I think much more likely is he will aim his fire at two things which indirectly will help Johnson. One is by being very rude about the European Union and their unwillingness to, or alleged unwillingness to contribute to the defence through their NATO budgets, etc., etc. That'll go down well with uh, uh, many Conservative potential voters. And the other, of course, is to talk about Corbyn as a threat to national security and repeat his uh, threat that he would not share US intelligence with Corbyn if he was Prime Minister. Um, and you can see on the other side of the fence, can't you, Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him? Are sort of, I mean, they're almost tweaking Trump's nose because they want him to say something that's going to harm Johnson. There was a TV debate last night where they were consistently trying to pin Trump and Johnson and Nigel Farage all together in the same club. And you can see the desperation. If only they can goad Trump into saying something. Oh, exactly. And I think um, it would actually make sort of like Labour's day, if not. Labour's election uh, if Trump were to say I think anything at all whatsoever on the NHS because the Labour Party has been going very very big on the threat of the NHS uh, if Boris were to win and in the case of a trade deal with the United States saying you know the NHS would not be on the table uh, the, the end of the NHS as we know it and so on so I think if Trump manages to say anything they manage somehow to get Donald Trump to say something about the NHS and about the trade deal between the US and the UK after Brexit then that that would be a major win um for Labour, but that being said, you know, will he do it? I'm, I'm not sure he will, um, unpredictable impreg- as he is. Um, the other question, I suppose, Victor, is to what extent interventions of this kind by foreign leaders make any real difference in a domestic election? I mean, famously, Boris Johnson was outraged when Barack Obama stepped in to urge a, a Remain vote in the EU referendum. It didn't seem to change the outcome. If anything, it may have actually been counterproductive. Well, I think it did change the outcome by by because there was a backlash. Uh, clearly, it didn't have the <laughs> intended effect, uh, but it did have an effect, and it certainly wasn't one uh, that uh, uh, Remainers uh, uh, benefited from. So clearly, something could happen at this NATO summit. Uh, that would um, uh, backfire. I don't think it'll be the NHS. I think uh, I think the NHS is on the table, by the way, uh, in any future talks. But I think Trump has learned his lesson and knows that he mustn't mention that. So I can't imagine um, him suddenly saying something uh, regarding the NHS at a NATO meeting, which is, after all, nothing to do with the NHS. I think that 
summit will probably be dominated by all sorts of rows between uh, France and Turkey, and also Trump again repeating his uh, claim that the Europeans are not paying enough, uh, and that will probably be what dominates the headlines. But as I say earlier, I think he may take an opportunity to take a pop at Corbyn in terms of sharing intelligence. Well, next to Denmark, where a court is to decide on whether a painting by a Danish artist can be destroyed and used as the faces for a line of luxury watches. The founders of the Kanske watch brand were bought at Talar's painting Paris Chic earlier this year and want to turn the canvas into between two and 300 watch faces. Each of those watches would cost a little over £1,000. If they all sell and they make 200 of them, they would clear a profit of about 150000 from the whole thing. Um, at issue, it seems, in the court case, Marie, is that is, is, is not the ownership of the painting. They own the painting. But it's whether they have the right to chop it up into pieces and reintroduce it into the public domain as effectively another work of art. Um, yes, no, it, it is a very odd uh, court case, and I can't really comment on the sort of like legality of it. I'm not not a legal expert, especially not in the arts, but it does seem quite grotesque, doesn't it? And I think that's presumably why they're doing it. And, you know, they're probably very, very happy. Actually, there's a court case and there's publicity around it um, because the watches may well um, sell as a result. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure... I'm not sure there's anything the painter should be able to do, actually, and I'm not sure it should really be up to the courts. Once once something has been done and sold, I think, you know, it, it, it is into the world, and I don't think the artist can necessarily have a claim to it. I don't know, maybe that's controversial. I suppose the, the, the thing, Victor, is that on the one hand, artists are very protective of their work, and there is this concept. I mean, if, if you suggested we're going to buy the Mona Lisa and we're just going to slice it up into pieces and turn it into coasters for you to put your coffee mugs on you know the, the world would explode in outrage but but the art market is a massively commercial market in which paintings change hands for six seven eight figure sums once you introduce that level of commerce into it once you've sold your painting it's not yours anymore well can i just disagree with you about one point which is that artists are always protective of their own work they're not there are plenty of cases of artists destroying their own work in fact as a child i can remember uh, because my music teacher was married to Roger Hilton, a famous uh, abstract painter. But at that time, he wasn't famous, and his work was just gathering dust as I climbed up the stairs for my music lessons. Later on, he became very famous, and I can remember a famous picture of him in one of the tabloids uh, with a glass of champagne in one hand and t- with his foot trying to destroy his painting in the other. So <laughs> I, I don't think we should get too worked up about this story about some new owner. And uh, the opportunities for uh, owners to cash in on the, what they've bought in order to make more money is legendary. I mean, think of the way in which um, modern contemporary art, uh, the market has been frankly manipulated to uh, the benefit of the new owners and to some extent to the artists themselves in order to enhance the price that they can subsequently get. It just seems odd in a situation where <clears throat> the art market is so much now about how much money you can sell things for you then sell something, someone else wants to make more money out of your art in a different format, and you go, this is outrageous. I must go to court to stop it. <laughs> and it, Yes, entirely. And I do think it's there's a slight element of the absurd as well, because it's reminded me weirdly of um, some questions someone asked on Cora, the website you can ask questions to experts, uh, that went a bit viral a few months ago, of someone who asked, who has a genuine sort of, you know, legal quandary, sorry, who has a <laughs> genuine sort of like legal quandary, said, well... If I had the money, could I technically, would it be legal for me to buy the Mona Lisa and eat it? Um, and it was very funny because you had all those experts saying, well, 
I suppose so. Yes, that's something you could do. And I think so. it kind of goes beyond the money is this idea of, you know, these incredible artworks. And it would be an artistic statement. Well, yes, exactly. But, you know, we, we can't... So I think, yeah, it goes beyond money is the idea of, you know, you... It feels wrong. It feels kind of um, intrinsically wrong to be doing anything to kind of, you know, a great famous artwork. But at the end of the day, you know, why not? Why not? Well, it's a bit... If, can I just quickly... It reminds me of the of the famous uh, ice sculptures at the uh, Channel 4 debate. I mean, you could say they were works of art, but by the end, they were just a pool of water. <laughs> if only somebody had called in halfway through. Maybe Boris Johnson... Maybe that's why Michael Gove turned up. Maybe he was trying to buy it. <laughs> or maybe Boris Johnson's dad wanted to buy it or something. There's some sort of memento of the campaign. I mean, just lastly, it, it's odd, though, isn't it? that you try to resolve an artistic debate in a courtroom. It feels to me they should have gone to a philosopher <laughs> or something like that. No, no, but I, I do think that, again, it's not. it shouldn't be about money or the law. I think it, it is a genuinely very interesting question, but I'm not sure it's one for the courts. I'm, a, I'm quite cynical, I, probably to do with my age. I think both of them will benefit commercially, financially, <laughs> from this uh, exercise and... Uh, I don't think we should get too exercised about it. Victor Bulma-Thomas and Marie Lacan, thank you both very much. In just a moment, we'll hear a little more about why this week Miami is the place to be. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Finally today, as Art Basel Miami kicks off, Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Romella, explains why it's worth the trip, and it's not just for the weather. Who wouldn't want to go to Art Basel Miami Beach? A week in the Florida sun, the world's best galleries gathered in a newly refurbished complex a few blocks away from the sand, and, of course, those infamous parties. This fair's reputation as the wild child of the Art Basel family has always had enormous pull with collectors and journalists. But there's another reason why the fair's location makes it particularly attractive. Jutting into the Caribbean, Florida has always served as a meeting point between North and Latin America. The art inside the halls often reflects this. And the more that politics on both subcontinents becomes incendiary, the more this fair becomes a relevant spot to explore the relationship and contrasts between the US and its southern neighbours. The debut of a new section called Disruptions, held outdoors in the seafront Collins Park, should feed into this theme. Born out of a collaboration with Art Basel City's Buenos Aires, a new addition in the Basel roster, the exhibition will present works by Argentinian artists with the intent of showing how art can interfere with everyday life. Those heading to Miami Beach this week should expect their balance to be thrown off over the next few days, and not just because of morning after hangovers. And that was Chiara Romella. That's all for today. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machelari, our studio manager, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. At 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. And Monocle's House View returns at 1800 in London tomorrow. For now, though, from me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.